And our first reading tonight is from John chapter 1, and we're reading uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and it's on page 1063 in the Pew Bibles. So John 1. The subtitle is, The Word Became Flesh. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Before Sam comes to speak to us, uh, we're going to have our second reading, which is from Exodus. Exodus chapter 25, again, I believe, yes, it's on the screen, verses 1 to 22, and it's on page 83 of the Pew Bible. So, reading from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the lights, spice for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark, put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of this cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark, and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. 
there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet you and give you all of my commands for the Israel. Good evening, everyone. A um, couple of things just as we, um, just before we uh, look at um, what God has to say to us in the tabernacle further. Um, this is, well, I think Frank likes it because he's brought in a, a load of them. Uh, it's probably my top recommendation for Exodus. I've been working through this as we've been preaching on, on Exodus over the past couple of months. It's by Tim Chester, who's written lots of really good, really accessible, really thoughtful books. And this is his commentary on Exodus, called Exodus for You, helping you to read, to marvel at God's liberating love, helping you to feed, to meditate on God's word day by day, and for helping you to lead, to equip, to teach the Bible to others. Um, So we've given away a copy of this um, already earlier on uh, in this series, but now we've got um, a good number of them in, and they're available for half price. So Normally they're about £12, and if you wanted to pick one up, they're in the foyer for £6. So really recommend that, really accessible. Loads and loads of stuff that you'll see in the kind of really big fat commentaries on Exodus condensed down and applied really well as well. So really useful resource on Exodus. Uh, The other thing I was going to say is you you maybe saw um, on the end of your pews a handout uh, with a picture of the tabernacle on it. Now, I'm not going to make extensive use of that, so it doesn't matter if you you haven't got one each. um, But is, is there anyone who can't see one of those at all if they kind of share about? I've got a couple of spares up the front here. Okay, great. Well, let's, um, let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to think about the tabernacle. Our Father, we've been thinking this evening about the wonderful chain of events that came into motion when the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, came into the world. Our Father, we believe in you, as our Father, through Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the virgin birth, in the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection, in the Holy Catholic Church, and in the Christ who will come again. Our Father, as we ponder these deep mysteries, and as we prepare to celebrate the great mystery of the Lord's Supper this evening, we pray, as we look into the tabernacle, that Perhaps the tabernacle itself would not be such a mystery to us as we consider it further, and we pray that it might shed light on this great mystery of the Son of God coming among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you'll turn back there to Exodus chapter 25. Um, This is not um, so much of a sort of exposition. We kind of had that this morning, if you were with us looking at these uh, several chapters from Exodus 25 all the way through to Exodus 31. This is a chance to kind of reflect again on these things. Um, I may well say some of the same things that we um, saw this morning uh, with Drew. Um, Maybe some things I'll say that will be a little bit of a chance to push things a bit further. Let me read from Exodus 25, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses... Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and, have, and I will dwell among them. Those are hugely significant words. I can't really stress that enough. In terms of the whole Bible story, this is the moment when God is going to come 
at last and dwell among his people. This has never happened in this way at any point so far in the story of the Bible. And even in the story of the Exodus, we've been seeing over the last few weeks how the Lord came down on Sinai um, to, to meet with his people. But we've been seeing that Moses has had to trek up Sinai to go and meet with God at the top of Sinai. And the top of Sinai, if you like, has become, if you like, a kind of a picture of heaven. It's where God's throne room is. God's presence is there at the top of Sinai. And when the Israelites are at the foot of Sinai, they're looking up, and they're, not, or they're almost not sure whether God is speaking from heaven or from the top of the mountain, because, because they're just looking up and hearing God speaking from the top of the mountain. But now the Lord says, make me a tent, and I'll come and live in it among you. All the people of Israel have got their tents, they've got their homes, and the Lord says, make me one of those, a special one, and I will come and dwell in your midst. Astonishing words. The God of Sinai is going to come and make his home among his people. And this is the start of the third big section of the book of Exodus. Um, Chapters 1 to 16 were all about... um, God rescuing his people, or 1 to 15, I should say. Uh, If you think about that from the start of the book all the way through to the Red Sea, that's God rescuing his people, bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then the last few weeks, we've been looking at how God restores his people, how he teaches them to trust him and to uh, live under his rule. Um, So God restores his people, and that culminates in that that great moment that we saw uh, last week on Sunday morning, when the people and God make that covenant together. And now, having done all that, now can come this point when God comes to reside with his people. And that's what the rest of Exodus is going to be about. How does God come to live with his people? So I've been using this kind of marriage illustration. We've had the, the kind of engagement and the courtship, and then last week on Sunday morning we saw the wedding when... Uh, God and the people made this commitment to each other, entered into this covenant relationship. And now here in Exodus 25, we're starting to look ahead to the time when God is going to come and move in, come and live with his people. Just like when the bridegroom comes to live with his bride. So God is saying, I'm going to come and live with you. But... As we've been reading this section, if you've been following that reading plan, you've probably had a sense that it can feel a bit tedious, can't it? All this stuff about the hoops and the uh, different kinds of spices for the incense. We kind of read things about ram skins dyed red and hides of sea cows. And we think, okay, there's lots here that we don't understand that feels very repetitive, feels very irrelevant to us. So what, what's the point of reading about this for us today? Well, I wanted us to read from... uh, John chapter 1 this this evening because when the Apostle John wants to describe what happens when when God comes to earth, when the Word becomes flesh, when the eternal Son of God takes on a human nature, what happens? John says, he, he dwelt among us. And literally, he tabernacled among us. When the Son of God comes to earth, the word that John wants to use to try to explain What that means is tabernacle. If we want to try and understand something of the the great mystery of God coming to earth in Jesus Christ, 
then we need to think about the tabernacle, because that's going to give us, if you like, a, a picture, a shape of what Jesus coming to earth is all about. And um, that's not new. We, we looked at that this morning. We saw that um, everything in the tabernacle is pointing to Jesus. Um, I just want to say briefly before we get into this, um, I first preached this, uh, I put, first preached on the tabernacle about five years ago, and I've since come back to it. This is now my third time preaching it since then. And every time I've come back to it, I've found it some of the most enjoyable material to, to look at. I find it very enriching, very encouraging. So I hope you will too as we look at the tabernacle again this evening. So the question is, what does it mean to have God on earth? And I've got just two points this evening to try and unpack that. And the first one is that um, God coming to earth is all about uh, us dwelling with God in grace. So two images to go along with those two points to help us think about what this tent is really all about. And the first one is it's kind of like a portable Sinai. Um, So we saw last Sunday morning, if you were with us, that Sinai actually has three levels to it. So let's have that up on the screen. So do you remember we saw um, that the people were all gathered around the base of Sinai and they, they were initially told that they couldn't touch it or anything like that. But then we saw when the elders were sprinkled with the blood of the covenant, they were able to go up and eat and drink with God and see God on that middle level of Sinai. But then uh, after that, Moses was told that he alone could ascend to the very peak of Sinai. Okay, so you've got people, elders, Moses, three levels of holiness on Mount Sinai. Um, And now look at your handout if you can see it there in front of you. We've got a little diagram of the tabernacle. And actually it turns out that there are, um, there's two tabernacles. I don't know if you knew that. There's kind of like a tabernacle within a tabernacle, a bit like Russian dolls of tabernacles. Um, you've got the, the, the basic tabernacle is the, 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 the wide area there um, is where all the people are allowed to come. Uh, there's a gate, there's an altar of burnt offering where they can bring their sacrifices. And all of the people are allowed there. And God says that he will meet with his people there. Um, But then you see the smaller box where it says the holy place or first tabernacle. That is um, a place that only the priest is allowed to go. He goes in there every day, morning and night, to to trim the lamps, put oil in the lamp uh, to keep it burning. And uh, he also goes in there to put bread uh, on the table of the Lord before God's presence. So that is called the holy place. And it's kind of like the, the, the basic tabernacle, the tabernacle that was used every day. And so you see you've got two levels of holiness already. You've got the outer level, uh, which is like the bottom of the mountain, and then you've got that middle level, which is that, that first tabernacle or outer tabernacle. But then there's one very special place, and this is, Hebrews talks about this as being the second tabernacle or the most holy place. And this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant sits. And this is the place that the high priest can go in only once a year, only carrying blood, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so that, of course, is the peak of Sinai. So you can see this tabernacle picture. It's almost like a top-down Sinai. You've got the most holy place, and then you've got the holy place, and then you've got the, the, just the normal place surrounding it where the people can meet with God. So the tabernacle is replicating Sinai on a smaller scale. 
but it's a tent. So that when the people leave Sinai, they can go with God. They can take the Sinai experience with them. They can still meet with God, not by trudging up and down the mountain anymore, but by going to the Lord with their sacrifices and meeting him at this tent. So we sometimes think of Sinai as being a sort of a dark, uh, threatening kind of a place. But last week we saw that when we're covered by the blood of the covenant, then actually it leads, it's a place of incredible intimacy with God, of fellowship with God, as the elders eat and drink with God and see him. And just as Sinai was all about helping sinners to have access to God and to enjoy his presence, well, that's what the tabernacle is all about too. It's all about God's grace, making a way for sinners to come into his presence. So the people never move on from Sinai. They take this Sinai experience with them. And that's why we've been wanting to stress that that Sinai is really, if you like, the goal of the journey out of Egypt. Although they're still going to carry on into the promised land, they're never going to leave Sinai behind them now. All that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks about what happens at Sinai, that that is the continual experience of what it means to be God's people as they carry the tabernacle with them. So that means that the the goal of the journey is not really just going to a land of milk and honey, a kind of a nice holiday destination. The goal of the journey is living in a land of milk and honey with the God of Sinai on your doorstep, the God of Sinai dwelling in your midst. And that raises the question, doesn't it, about what we think the goal of our journey is as God's people. We could maybe kind of categorize the things that we're looking forward to into those two categories. We could think about all the promises of material blessing, uh, a nice uh, house, good food and drink to eat, um, health, good relationships. All of those things are kind of like the milk and honey kind of blessings, really good things, part of God's good world uh, that God promises to us uh, eventually one day. But God also promises those kind of other blessings, those more sort of spiritual blessings, if you like, the promises of enjoying God. Uh, And we could talk about that as being the kind of God dwelling among us kind of blessings. And what Exodus is wanting to say to us is it's really the God dwelling with us blessings that are the things that we should be most excited about. Those things are wonderful. We should certainly look forward to all sorts of wonderful things. But an encounter with God, an encounter with the Lord who dwelt on Sinai and comes down to us in Jesus Christ, that is the goal of our journey. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have found that very exciting at a certain point in my life. And I I still do struggle to think of that as being an exciting thing. And I wonder if you do too. We struggle, don't we, with the idea that being with God is the greatest thing we could experience. Well, a long time ago, the Puritan author, John Owen, tried to analyze this, and he had this sense, as he observed people around him, that many people want to run away from God because they only ever think of him in terms of his terrible majesty, his severity, and his greatness. So you could think of that as the kind of the Sinai kind of experience that we had a few weeks ago when they, heard, when they saw the thunder and the lightning, and they, they heard the the Ten Commandments booming down. People run away from God when they think about his terrible majesty, 
severity, and greatness. All things that are true of God, but if we only think about those, then we'll, we'll run to run away from God because we know we're not ready to be with him. But Owen suggested that if we fix our thoughts instead on God's everlasting tenderness, or in addition, and perhaps primarily, on God's everlasting tenderness and compassion, his thoughts of kindness that have been from of old, his present gracious acceptance, then we'll be able to, not even to be able to bear even an hour's absence away from fellowship with God. If we think of God as eternally loving us, then we'll want to be with him. We won't bear to be apart from him. And I think the tabernacle can help us to do this. Because at the centre of the tabernacle, in the most holy place, you can see there, was this thing we call the Ark of the Covenant. This little wooden chest um, made of wood covered in pure gold. And we call it the Ark of the Covenant because it contained the Ten Commandments, the testimony that God's covenant with the people was placed into that ark. And that, in a sense, means that it was a reminder of God's majesty, of his eternal moral standards that we fail to live up to. But, the Lord said in Exodus 25, over it, make an atonement cover, literally a a lid for this box, also made of pure gold, to fit exactly on top of this box. And then beat out of the gold that covers this lid two cherubim, two kind of angels with their wings outstretched over the middle of the box and their faces looking in to the middle of this box. And that is the place where the high priest goes and he puts the blood of the sacrifice onto that lid. And the word that gets used for that lid, that cover, is actually expiation, which means taking away of sin. Literally, the word cover also means taking away of sin. Okay? And so when the high priest is putting the blood on that, on that cover of that box, God is saying, I will take away your sin. And that's why we call it an atonement cover, because it makes us at one with God. It atones for our sin and brings us to God. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is called the name of that box, the name of that lid on that box. Um, We call it in English sometimes traditionally a mercy seat. It's the place of mercy. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is called the mercy seat because he is the place where God is going to make atonement for us. He is going to be the place where we can have our sins taken away, and we can be united to God and brought into his presence. And so the tabernacle reminds us that, yes, God is a God of majesty and of awesome power, but he has always also been a God of mercy and of love. Even before people sinned under the law, God gave them this picture of Christ, this cover for this box, to show them that God so loved the world that he would send his son as an expiation for our sins. God so loved the world, God is so full of kindness and grace that his son would die to cover our sin. 
So if you want to think about God, if you want to be delighted in God, if you want to have a, more of a sense of wanting to draw near to God, then think about the tabernacle as a symbol, a picture of God's grace, a picture of God's thoughts of kindness from of old. Well, in the Old Testament, the priests ate those sacrifices uh, that they offered um, uh, to God. And tonight, we get to eat the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, In the bread and the wine that are here, we get to enjoy a reminder that God has made an expiation for our sin. He's taken away our sin, and we get to come into his presence, even though we're sinners. So tonight, as we share the Lord's Supper, will you receive the bread and wine as tokens of God's grace for you? Uh, Reminders of his kindness from of old. His commitment to dwell with us despite our sin. Will you enjoy eating and drinking? Enjoying the taste of the depths of his kindness and his compassion in sending his beloved son to be our mercy seat. So that's the first thing then that comes from God dwelling on earth, grace. But the second thing is um, glory. And the way to see this is to think of the second image I want to give you for this um, tent. And that is, it's a kind of a miniature Eden. Okay, this tabernacle is a portable Sinai and it's also a miniature Eden. So I'm going to try and show you this in, um, in three ways uh, as quickly as possible. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, it's page 4. Genesis 2, verse 12. And we're, here we are in the, in the middle of Eden, and we're getting a description of the wonderful things, the glorious things about Eden. And you see there, verse 12, it says, The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Okay, so gold, aromatic resin, and onyx. Uh, now turn back again to the tabernacle, uh, verse 20, uh, Exodus 25, page 83. And God is describing here the offerings, the materials that are going to be needed to build the tabernacle. And you can see at the head of that list is gold. And there's silver and there's bronze, but gold is certainly the most significant metal in the tabernacle. It's what the the Ark of the Covenant is covered in. It's what the lampstand is covered in. Uh, I think the table is covered in gold as well. Okay, so gold heads the list. And then at the end of the list, onyx stone heads the list and other gems as well. But onyx stone is particularly highlighted So the materials that this tabernacle is going to be constructed by are reminiscent of Eden. Okay, so that's the materials. But you can also think about the way that this tabernacle is constructed. In the creation of the world, we know that God created the world by speaking. Uh, he, He speaks six times, and the world comes into being. This ordered, beautiful world. And then on the on the last day, the seventh day, God blesses it and institutes the Sabbath as a day of rest. Well, when you come to the tabernacle, if you were to flick through Exodus 25 to 31, you would discover that God speaks six times with instructions on how to make the tabernacle. They're quite clearly marked off. Um, Turn to page 90 and you'll see a couple of them. 
Uh, they each begin, then the Lord said to Moses. And you see the last one on page 90, verse 12, is all about the Sabbath. So six days of God speaking about making the tabernacle, and number seven, it's about the day of rest. Um, And then we could also look um, at who makes the tabernacle. And in creation, we see the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It seems like he's going to be a key player in making the world, this ordered, beautiful world. And in the tabernacle, uh, chapter 31, verse 3, we see Bezalel, son of Uri, has been filled with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Uh, this is almost the first time since uh, those, that opening chapter of the Bible where the Spirit of God appears and is spelled out in this way. And here he is again, inspiring this beautiful, ordered world. So the tabernacle, it, there's other things I could have shown you, but we don't have time. The tabernacle is, is meant to be seen as a kind of a miniature Eden, a, a kind of a microcosm of the world as it was always meant to be. And in fact, it's better than Eden uh, because there's more gold. Uh, literally, the tabernacle is kind of drenched in gold. And now there's not just Adam and Eve, but lots and lots of people uh, living around this tabernacle. And most importantly, it seems like God only visited Eden. Uh, he's, he's there in the cool of the day, but that, that seems to be a, a visit rather than him being resident there. But now here, for the first time, I think, in the Bible... God is going to be making his special presence actually among the people forever. So the tabernacle, it's not just about dealing with sin. It's not just about grace. It's also about fulfilling God's purposes for the whole world, fulfilling all of God's intentions in creation and bringing us through to glory. God on earth gives us the promise of a perfect world. So imagine an Israelite boy uh, trudging through the wilderness. It's hot, there's not much water, and maybe he's getting a bit down and thinking, oh, where, you know, where are we going, Dad? You know, this, are we nearly there yet? You know, no, why do we have to keep going? And his dad says, well, son, look at the tabernacle there in the middle of this people. That's not just a fancy tent, son. That is the place where the God of the universe has decided to put his special presence. That is a place of perfection and peace and holiness. Don't look around at the desert. Look there. That is where God is taking us. To a perfect world. The tabernacle gives us this promise of a perfect world. In Revelation, God says that now the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the climax of the Bible story. But I wonder how you feel when you hear that promise, when you hear that God is going to dwell with us. I don't know about you, but I actually find it quite hard to believe. Because day in, day out, this world can feel very broken, very chaotic, very messy, very dirty. Uh, I don't know if you saw this week um, about the out-of-control deer in Gilnaherk that had to be shot by the police. 
that's nature going wild, invading our city. And of course, it's, a, it's just a little taste, isn't it, of, of some of the much more serious events that almost weekly we hear about in our world. Our world is a messy place, isn't it? And God says he's going to come and dwell here. To make any sense of that, I nearly have to kind of scale that down and think of God as like a big friendly giant who's going to kind of come and, and stomp about among us. But, but Revelation says more. The Bible says more. The Bible says that God is going to fill the whole world with his glory. Everything is going to be totally full of God's glory. This whole world will be a temple of the Lord Almighty. How can we believe that when this world is so broken, so dirty, so corrupt, so violent, so chaotic? Well, if the tabernacle is all about pointing to Jesus, then the answer must be Jesus, mustn't it? And in fact, as we read in the New Testament, that is what we find. We find that Jesus was made of a normal human body and soul, normal human flesh and blood, but totally pure. The Spirit of God was involved in his conception. The Spirit of God formed a kind of a new creation in Mary's womb, a new start, a new beginning, an ordered human being, a human being the way he was meant to be. And that's really important because human beings were always meant to be the the kind of the focal point of creation. And when Jesus is conceived, a human being who is the right way comes into the world. And when we see him in the Gospels, uh, living and breathing and acting and loving, we're seeing what humanity was always intended to be like. And so he does signs that point ahead to this new creation that's coming in after him. He turns water into wine. He opens the eyes of the blind. I find this helpful. I don't know if it's a new idea for you, but I actually find it helpful to think, yes, God is going to remake the world. Yes, this world really can be full of God's glory. Because there is one part of the world that already is. And his name is Jesus. It's a bit like uh, God has planted a flag. He said, there is a part of this world that I am going to fill with my glory right now. And that's going to be a sign that one day I'm going to fill the whole world with my glory. And that flag is Jesus. He is the one who is pure and perfect. Utterly spotless. Ordered and beautiful. And so when we look at him, we remember that this world isn't desolate. We're not living on a kind of a ruined planet where we have to scrap for existence and make the best of what we can because at the end of the day, it's not going to get any better. This planet is waiting for perfection when God finally comes to earth. So we don't have the tabernacle to look at now and we don't have... Christ to look at now with our physical eyes. We can't kind of look at his glorified body this evening and take encouragement from that. But you know what we do have, don't you? We've got this. The Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, said, take bread and wine. This is my body 
and this is my blood. This is my body, the promise of a perfect world, broken for you, now glorified in heaven and coming again in glory. So as we eat and drink tonight, we actually eat and drink the promise of a perfect world, a world that is ordered and beautiful, where God dwells with us, where we will be his people and we will be Sorry, where, he will, where we will be his people and he will be our God. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, we thank you for the tabernacle and all that it pointed to. Now, things that we've only scratched the surface of tonight, things that make our heads spin, but ultimately, Father, we thank you for these things and ask that they would encourage us and uh, strengthen our faith, especially as we share uh, the Lord's Supper tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just pray. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Christ's perfection. Thank you for Christ's presence. Thank you for his promise of a perfect world. And thank you that if any is in Christ, they are a new Eden, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, Heavenly Father, having had a glimpse of your glory, having appreciated again the depth of your grace, send us from this place, we pray, encouraged and renewed to be signs of your grace and signs of your glory in this dark, difficult and fragile world. This is our prayer, for it is offered in the name of Jesus.